Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Nerd Cultural Podcast. I'm your host David and with me we have the NCP crew, Richo. Hey, hey. Crystal. Hello. And Luke. I know what evil lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> you lie. <laughs> we also have a special guest with us today, the creator, moderator and all-round maestro of the Black Panel, Mr. Aaron Markham. Yay. Who are you people? <laughs> we've, we've kidnapped him from the Black Panel. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll untie you once the podcast is done. <laughs> That's we right, have, we're we have dragged you through the scary door. <laughs> ah. So welcome to the, the No Culture Podcast, Aaron. How do you, how do you go? Oh, I can't complain. I'm happy to be here. Hello. You're happy to be here? You're not one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I love his trip, the trepidation in his voice. I'm happy to that, be here. And that thanks was not given under any kind of pressure <laughs> or coercion whatsoever. <laughs> I'll just put down the hot poker now. <laughs> So we actually uh, mentioned the Black Panel on the website uh, a number of times, the website of course being www.nerdculturepodcast.com, but uh, now that you're here, Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about Black Panel? Well, the Black Panel is a a locally produced website devoted to uh, video games and popular culture, and it's got daily updates on uh, everything you'd be interested in if you're into games. And the website is? Blackpanel.com.au. Nice one, Crystal. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, and you also are on iTunes as well, and they're, they're... Podcasts and stuff like that. Oh, look, you've got to be a part of it. It's awesome. Rate and review. Rate so, yeah, so it was because of the Black Panel and our relationship with it, we, our focus on games is. Our sordid relationship. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say that. I'm trying to say he's sitting right Do you here. want me to get the hot poker again? <laughs> um, our focus at Nerd Culture Podcast on gaming is uh, minimal. Uh, and uh, if you want any gaming news, as Aaron said, check them out. They're pretty cool. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they're very cool. So if you're new to our little project, Nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture-related items, uh, like books, films, and comic reviews, with a healthy dose of opinion. Not only do we have the podcast, but uh, we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com, which features additional content. The podcast you, of course, know about because you're listening to it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Which is on iTunes. Right Where's reviews. that sound coming from? <laughs> Wait, it's a podcast. <laughs> Nerd culture. We the are point. the voices in your head. <laughs> so let's get on with this show. <laughs> Luke's voice in my head. <laughs> oh no, make it stop. Luke, Luke is the next door neighbor's dog telling me to do God's work. <laughs> Luke's voice, I know it's wrong and yet it feels so right. <laughs> okay, so coming up first... <laughs> is Dust Jacket. And for this installment of Dust Jacket, we'll be looking at Galactic Patrol by E.E. Doc Smith. Take it away, Richard. Okay, well, a little bit of background first for everybody. Um, Galactic Patrol is technically the third of uh, the Lensman novels, but originally it was actually the first um, it was so you did Star Wars. You did four, five, and six first, and then did one, two, and three. N- not exactly. Um, basically, Galactic nothing like it. In fact, yeah. <laughs> but you're not that far off. I mean, you, you know, the first two Star books were actually written after, as you know, a sort of a prequel to set up. But yeah. anyway, I'm taking over Richard's thunder. So please, yeah. Now, originally there were four novels um, published between 1937 and 1948. Um, they were first serialized in Astounding Stories magazine. Smith had written an earlier story called Triplanetary, and in the 1950s, his publisher 
asked him to actually rewrite Triplanetary as a prequel to the Lensman stories. And so he did that, and then he wrote a book called uh, The First Lensman, which bridges the gap between uh, Triplanetary and Galactic Patrol. But of the Lensman series, uh, Galactic Patrol was actually the first one written as an actual Lensman story. Yeah, before obviously this sort of, I guess, retconning of Triplanetary yeah. into the mythos. Yeah, wasn't it like second stage Lensman and Children of the Lens and uh, Great Lensman? June. Okay, Galactic Patrol is the first of the official Lensman stuff. Yes. Grey Lensman, second stage Lensman, Children of the Lens, and then there's a last one called Masters of the Vortex, which sort of is sort of a bookend, I guess. Uh, as far as uh, where it's placed in the uh, sort of literary canon of science fiction, um, the Lensman series was actually voted the runner-up by the Hugo Awards for the best all-time series. You will remember from uh, previous podcasts that the winner of that award was actually the Foundation series, so it's in fairly high regard this oh, series. Oh no, my, uh, my appreciation of the Hugos has dipped dramatically based on the uh, this year's Hugo, Hugo Month reviews that I'm reading on the website. This year's batch, Just. very, very poor. Where did, yes. the, uh, where did those recent Star Wars novelizations sit in the uh, Hugo? Are they the Kevin time? J. Anderson? Uh, yeah, the Kevin books? J. Anderson ones. Yeah, look, um, I have you a certain... You not mention the damned ones, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have a certain um, unspoken rule here at Nerd Cult Podcast <laughs> oh that my. Kevin J. Anderson is not mentioned in any category whatsoever. I've never heard of this unspoken rule. It's because it's unspoken! It's not ashamed. All right, well, enough of the background of the book and uh, where it's placed in, uh, as I said, in the sci-fi canon. Galactic Patrol tells the story of uh, a lensman known as Kimball Kinnison, who is one of the best and brightest of the new recruits of the Galactic Patrol. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. Kimball Kinnison. Um, Terrible name. And his and the Galactic Patrol's ongoing battles with space pirates. You've got a lot of space pirates. Well, they are a bit of a staple of uh, the sort of early pulp Science fiction is the space pirates. Um, so not only is a recently graduate, he's actually in the first class. Mm. Yeah, yes. he's actually um, yeah, he's kind of promoted straight away into. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He obviously knows a lot of good people higher up. Cause his promotion is just ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah, he's basically he's just been promoted. Here, we're giving you this top class experimental ship that no one has ever tested before, yeah. but we're sending you straight up against the pirates. Oh, there's a reason though. There's a reason though for it because it's yeah. old. It's an old school. Space cruiser. Yeah, the the the, the, the new stuff. It's yeah, yeah. The, the half-hearted excuse given in the book is that um, yeah. the ship actually uses a very ancient weapon system, mm. and that anybody, any more experienced captain um, who is used to using the new weaponry systems, mm. would actually not be able to function as well as this green recruit who has just come out. Granted, top of his class, mm. but has just come out as a brand new lensman. Apparently, he's the right man for the job. And they, knew, and they need this ship because they're getting their butts handed to them. Yeah, them. basically. So this this like, goes back to what I was saying about Green Lantern. He's the new guy, but now he's suddenly the most important guy. <laughs> I think there was also a vague suggestion that he was disposable. Yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah, well, but the suggestion comes well, from they him. All? He says that, yeah. oh, you, you, you want me to use this because it's experimental, it's new, you don't want to waste a top-class um, executive officer or captain yeah. on something that might actually be blow itself Just blow in your face. It's a kamikaze in, mission. Hmm. Yeah. Well, effectively, the actual mission is that the pirates, known as Bosconians, have a power source that is giving them the upper hand in the battle for space. And so the mission um, that 
Kinnison is given early on in the book, mm. is to actually attack one of the pirate ships and get the schematics and information using a tech crew um, for this new power source and then get it straight back to Galactic Patrol headquarters. Mm. The mission goes successfully, uh, although he does have to <laughs> jettison the ship and <laughs> certainly uh, send all of his crew off in life pods in different directions in the hope that at least one of them will get through. So, I know, that is gold. Yeah, so it's, it's obviously the uh, seriousness of the mission is impressed upon him <laughs> enough for him to do this rather extreme plan. Um, and then we are off on really a two-fisted ad- adventure beginning with him actually trying to get the information that he has back to um, back to Galactic Patrol HQ. Mm. Along the way he gets involved in all kinds of very short serialized style stories. Uh, he has to rescue a dragon planet from mind-controlled villains. He uh, felt like I'm making it up as they were going along. <laughs> yeah, but he, he was. Yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, he resides over the trial of... Well, he has to, he has to infiltrate uh, the pirate base. He almost gets killed. Yeah. Um, that puts him in hospital where he meets Florence Nightingale in the form of Clarissa McDougall. And, uh, Jack, and then treats her horribly. That's right, he's absolutely... Like, just like a real man. Well, the funny thing is, up until that point, and he's staying in the hospital, he's displayed absolutely no personality whatsoever. That's right. He's yeah. just nobody, and I'm crying yeah. out, can you just instill something in him? He has the hospital say, he's the most obnoxious man you've ever met, and you wish you'd go back to just being a blank slate. <laughs> totally. Well, the, well I, I suppose the interesting so thing... The hero. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing early on is that the most... You know, the, the character with the most personality... Is actually the dragon that they meet. Um, <laughs> I had that I, same theory in, in Sucker Punch. I had the most empathy for that dragon. Yeah. Well, I kept, I kept thinking, yeah, no, no, poor little thing. <laughs> I kept thinking early on, wow, this dragon's got quite an interesting story. If only he was the main character. <laughs> <laughs> Lex Sinestro. He's the Sinestro of the Galactic Patrol. So, um, yeah, so he obviously meets Clarissa McDougal and. Uh, look, I'm not giving too much away to say that uh, she actually comes back into. Uh, the subsequent books yes. as a major, major oh really there you go she's yeah. the love interest at least, yes. at least has a better name than I didn't, get a, I didn't get a hint of that at all I thought she was just disposed of what are you no, talking what? about with a skeleton like that <laughs> yeah no the, um, the, whole, the whole thing that they're talking about um, with her is that you, you haven't read um, Triplanetary or First Lensman is I, that they I try... regret the fact that I read this so no I haven't read any of the rest of them. in Triplanetary and First Lensman you meet um, Kimball Kinnison's father Rod the Rock Kinnison um, Rod the Rock. Rod the Rock. He was a professional wrestler. Can you what the Rock is talking? But the main, he's not the main character. He's a very he's of the Rock. He's um, a secondary character. He's a supporting character to Virgil Sams, yeah. who's the main character who sets up Triplanetary, is the first lensman who starts off Galactic Patrol and, you know, the lensman training program. Um, and there's, they, I think they even stated, if I remember correctly, that she has some Sams blood in him. In her, sorry, that she has some Sams blood in her. Yeah. Um, so and they're all talking about the well other I'm confused are you saying they're related in some way no what I'm saying is that <laughs> oh, she, she's their, related to the other their guy blood li- their bloodlines actually descend back to you know oh the heroes of the the heroes like, of Triplanetary the, and yeah right. the, the and guy so, that originally set up the Galactic Patrol right yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm still a, I have no interest in any thought so after he stayed hospital um, Kinnison is then uh, basically sent to a planet called Arisia where he's basically given extra training in how to use the lens of course, the question then is, why wasn't he given this extra training to begin with? Because well, yeah, then he could have maybe done was, a better job. That was the but, first thing that leaped well, to Well, now he's a second stage lensman. No, he's the grey lensman now. Uh, no? Both. 
But he's now a second uh, stage Lando. When, when he actually returns from um, being injured by the pirates, he's given the term uh, Grey Lensman. Ah. Then when he does the training, he My becomes a second stage Lensman as well. It's like like Gandalf um, the Grey that turns into Gandalf the White. Isn't yeah, it's a basic sort of thing. It, it and just, he is the first second stage Lensman. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that true? Is that what it says? He's the first one? Yeah, because he's, yeah. he's the specialist. <laughs> Nobody even knows to go back and get the extra That's hilarious. He... And it makes you wonder, like, they obviously have I thought he only term... gets a special training. Doesn't he get a special training because he judges that guy and he proves that he's he's not he's not corrupt and... I think it goes back to what Aaron said about him making it up as he goes along. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, lost, I lost track halfway through. Well, look, he does. Yeah, he, well, he does. Then just go off and uh, he does solve a murder mystery. Mm. Um, I'm do. not quite sure why he decides to do that and not deal with this horrible <laughs> pirate situation. There's been a murder. Before, he goes well, back well, to the pirates. It's all right. And yes, in the end, he goes back to the pirates, and my God, does he wreak bloody revenge <laughs> upon them with a massive barrage of fire that is. Quite graphically described as... I will wreak my wenge. And against, against the, uh, the the main bad guys. Helmuth. 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 Which is better than, you know, Grey Roger from Triplanetary in the first place. Yes. Pirate King. Uh, I, just, you described the sort of fire and vengeance that he, he uh, directs towards the, the pirates. And I actually thought there was kind of a troubling undercurrent in, in the book that his method of waging war, it, it evolves. He's very hands-on at first, but then as his ability to... Uh, psychically manipulate and annihilate his, beho- his opponents from a safe distance sort of comes to the fore and it starts becoming vaguely disturbing. He's just yeah, sitting at yeah. us off in no danger whatsoever, wiping out thousands and thousands of people and, as if it's a video game. Yeah. And, um, and by the way, you should tune into Black Panel <laughs> for all video game news. Awesome. And it reminds me of those CNN footage yeah. things where... Yeah. The Americans are in no danger, just laying waste to the opponents. They talk about this as it needs to be a war of absolute extinction. Yeah. Why? Why, yeah. You don't establish that. They're just a a rival authority. Yeah. And they're they're challenging the absolute authority of the Galactic Patrol, who have this... And the author has this assumption that everywhere that the Lensman goes, alien races will just... Yes, we'll help you. Yes. Yeah, even even when it... it does... Puts does, them at great risk. Yeah. Yeah. He does establish that uh, members of the Galactic Patrol are, are seen as completely infallible yeah. and uh, mm. beyond corruption. The and and so therefore everybody just apparently loves them. Um, but the, that, the dragon character, for instance, that takes him back to his planet, that could have resulted in the absolute obliteration of their species. Yeah. And uh, it, it reminds me of when the uh, Americans, when they're playing politics in the international stage... They say, you're with us, right? And if anyone shows the slightest hesitation, they're shocked. What, yeah. what do you mean you're not doing yeah, this? Yeah. The French, of course, French are on the receiving end of Freedom for eyes. Yeah. I think it goes back to... When was it written? Uh, it was written... Uh, 1937, 1938 was when it was originally serialised. Um, and it goes back to the times when it's really just written as... Uh, a build-up of a hero for the the kiddies to look up to. I don't think a lot of thought was put into the depth of the story. It was just perhaps, well, there, there is no depth cons- to the story at yeah. all. Perhaps not consciously, but I think yeah. it, it reveals sort of a, a subconscious. Yeah. Having said that, that's no excuse for the really poor writing. Incredibly poor writing. Did you writing. notice they use the words hither and thither all yeah. the time? Yeah. Hither and thither. I, I think that's probably because the editor was yeah. only viewing these chapters in sections and yeah. so it never occurred to them how many times yeah, those words are my yeah. biggest problem was that it was most of the story is told through dialogue that really annoyed mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. that can be done quite effectively the problem is that the dialogue becomes very is very exposition and i'm talking exposition and laborious chapter two and they're talking about the ship 
Um, it's just reams on reams of specs of the ship, you know, what it can do, what it's capable of. Mm. Yeah, my um, eyes, of eyes talk- over. <laughs> I did kind of... Well, when you get to the battle, which is really... The battle you, is really you good. You could find this information out if you just described mm. what was going on during the battle. <laughs> but the battles are actually very quick, mm. and they often usually evolve in... You know, usually result in annihilation for the bad guys. However, they do introduce... And, and this was almost reading the book uh, on its own. A space axe, which That's is, true. is a That's regular true. axe, but it's in space. space. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like pigs in space. <laughs> well, he's, um, one thing I, I, I could give him credit for, he he creates a what could be quite an interesting world, um, universe. Mm. Um, you know, you've got, it's great. Mm. Yeah, you, you've got dragon men, you've got you know, mind enslaving bad guys, mm. you've got space pirates, you've got and the lens themselves. And the yeah, lens the themselves. lens itself. The concept, and that's why it's had such a long shelf life and is seen as a bit of a classic yeah. um, because of its imagination. Irrespective of it, you know, its writing style and its characterization and storytelling, really what people respond to in this are two things the imagination of the un- and the concepts of the universe. And the action itself. I agree, because I mean, having come at it from this point in time, looking back, uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's come in between, so I'm probably tainted a little bit if I'd never read mm. it at the time. Mm. It might have been different. Hard for you to read it, yeah. And well, yeah, you can, you can clearly <laughs> well, see its you know, influences. You look great for your age. <laughs> <laughs> I had this friend with the TARDIS. <laughs> um, you, can, you can clearly see the book's influences in reading it, the influence mm. that it's had across the whole spectrum of science fiction. Yep. Um, yeah. Certainly, obviously, in the space opera field, um, especially, and you can see its influences on things like Star Wars, um, Star Trek, Starship yeah. Troopers, and of course mm. the, the the obvious connection that is always made, which is uh, between Lensman and Green Lantern. Mm. Oh, let's uh, speak a bit more about that. Actually, while we were talking, I noticed quite a number of references to Green Lantern, and uh, just by on just random sort of comments. But uh, Richard, there's a bit of a Green Lantern Lensman controversy. Controversy. Um, <laughs> well, there, there is. I mean, it's and even if there isn't, we're going to make it up now. <laughs> well, there there is a um, a lot of uh, commenters have actually pointed out the similarities between the two, um, especially in the idea of the lens um, and the you know being sort of powered by the mind and the ability, extra abilities that it gives to the lensman, and the fact that the lensmen are seen as you know courageous and infallible um, space cops. Mm. Yeah, and and of course, yes, the the space police. Um, a special ring with one per sector. Yeah, one per sector. Exactly. Um, however, um, both John Broom, the writer of the original Green Lantern Hal Jordan stories, um, and Julius Schwartz, who was the editor, um, have both actually categorically claimed that whilst they were familiar with the Lensman, they'd never actually, certainly the title Lensman, they'd never actually read the stories, mm. and so therefore they didn't feel that they were influenced by them. Um, it's interesting because uh, Julius Schwartz was actually a literary agent uh, for science fiction writers um, before going to DC. So it's kind of remarkable that he actually hadn't read uh, the Lindsman stories, which obviously at the time were considered what you trying know, to say, some classics. But he probably Julius nothing, a, nothing. A, a guy. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've learned something today. His name is Julius. Oh, Julius. I thought it was Julia. I thought you said Julia too. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no but, Julius Schwartz. But being a science fiction literary agent, he probably would have read or come across, you know, stories that had been influenced by the Lensman, mm. um, you know, the other space operas that were being written at the time, and so was influenced more by them, yeah. which were taking their influence from Lensman in the first place anyway. Maybe just read it and forgot, because it's... Well, interestingly, there is um, 
actually an earlier story um, that Broom and Schwartz were involved in uh, from 1952, a Captain Comet story mm. called uh, The Guardians of the Clockwork Universe, um, in which a group of aliens called the Guardians of the Universe bring Captain Comet to the centre of the universe to help them solve a tough case. <laughs> uh, and that's interestingly, awesome. uh, yeah, interestingly are they enough, little, that's little dudes with big blue heads. Um, I'm not sure actually. I've never read the story, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, now that, that I know about it, I'm certainly going to try and track it down. I love the title, Guardians of the Clockwork Universe. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And supposedly, yeah, that obviously then provided much of the basis for you know what became the Green Lantern Corps stories that mm-hmm. uh, appeared after that from Showcase Twenty Two onwards. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this stuff has been made. The link between Lensman and Green Lantern has been made by later writers. I know Danny O'Neill um, certainly is. Ha- certainly, it's been said that Danny O'Neill has a soft spot for the Lensman stories. Mm. And the um, same, yeah, well, there's same characters named after Lensman. Yeah, mm. well, Mike Mike W. Barr, who was uh, writing uh, in the early '80s, was mm. writing Green Lantern stories. Actually, introduced characters named after um, planets. Mm. In Lensman, like Arisia, Edor. Mm. So, yeah, so clearly the later writers saw the connections and, and brought them in. I think that's pretty much what's fueled the controversy more mm. than anything else. There's a weird character for you, Arisia. A child who grew, forces herself to grow up. And what's wrong with Arisia? Dwin, Dwin Hal- I think she's cool, but just the whole. So mm. I know the subtext of her. So it ends up in bed with Hal Jordan. So. I know, but she's still yeah, but which, which, technically a which, child. Which woman doesn't end up in bed with Hal <laughs> Jordan know, at one point? It's a bit weird. But yeah, she's cool. One of my pet peeves with this book, uh, and with all books that do this, is that when an author claims that something is just too uncanny to describe, Ooh. and Smith <laughs> does this on several occasions, stating things like, it is entirely useless to even attempt to describe what happened to them. Guess what? You're a writer. <laughs> it's your job. <laughs> no, this isn't a podcast, dude. You have to describe it. I agree. Strongly yeah, agree. Although, but... better, better that, actually, than the uh, Dan Brown... It's like, well, he looked kind of like Harrison Ford <laughs> if, if you could sort of picture him on the side angle. And he looked like Sir Elton John. And so, oh. I'll have to go back and change it to he looked kind of like Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. There's there one other thing. I mean, if you're a woman coming to this book, I mean, keep in mind it was written in the 30s, but of course there were still were better female characters in the 30s. But good old Nurse Mac is uh, afforded about as much respect from the author as she is from the Lensman. And at Smith at one point writes... Uh, she passed along her illogical thought, and the nurses, being also women, accepted it without question. Oh so, my god! I, I looked up uh, on. Yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> I have to admit, I, I got so bored of the story, I didn't get that far, so I didn't have a response to that. But wow! Yeah, I'm on. It's... I checked on Wiki, and he was a married man, Smith. But I'm not actually convinced that he's ever <laughs> met a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there is quite a substantial amount of. I suppose sexism is the right word. Yes. Yep. Uh, in these books, um, that's like, that's which, not, which 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 sort of then the bush, it's clearly sexist. sexist. Yeah. <laughs> which, which then sort of add you know sexism to the unbelievably violent and um, quite brutal nature of uh, Kimball Kinnison. He doesn't really come across as a very likable character in any way at all. Well, they, they like Jack played by Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> they talk about the, the pirates as being these ruthless savages. Look in the mirror. That's uh, right. I mean, the total total annihilation. It's total annihilation of the pirates. Total annihilation of the mind-controlling... The Australian uh, political party should have total annihilation policies. Awesome. There's something... I don't know if I'm going too far here, but is there kind of a fascist undercurrent? Oh, absolutely. Is there not going too far at all? Very much. 
which is interesting because I mean it was we're talking 1937 mm. here so we're, we're pre-World War II um, obviously we've got the Nazi party is already well and truly um, you know ensconced mm. in, in Germany you've got the fascists in Italy and in Spain as well um, and it's yeah I, I guess there is an undercurrent there and it's interesting I wonder what Doc Smith's political views were at the time when, when did um, Germany invade Poland? 39, 38. 38. Oh, that's and they annexed. <laughs> and please, they didn't invade, they annexed. Yeah. Okay, so uh, final thoughts anyway. I have a soft spot for um, Berlin's and stuff because of the action and because of the imagination. You know, the rampant sexism and, you know, 30s moors don't quite appeal to me, but I think it's... I think it, it I is can, a I time's can, fun. It is a time's fun, mm. and I can see it's a place. I don't think it's actually the best written space opera, even of that period. Um, I think that it's Edmund Hamilton's um, Captain Future stories and Edmund Hamilton's stuff in general is far superior. Edmund Hamilton's a better writer. And Jack Williams, sorry, Jack Williamson's Legion of Space um, stories, because Jack Williamson does what Doc Smith doesn't do, which is introduce um, personality and flaws. A lot of his hero, a lot of the heroes have a flaw introduced. Mm. Oh, come Doc, Doc anyway. characters have flaws. They're, just, they're all pricks. <laughs> yeah, the influence of this is mm. science fiction would be different today without this. Yeah, the ending of the book incredibly abrupt. Yeah, so you turn the page and what? Yeah, and where's that full stop? Yeah. At first, I was thinking that's pathetic, that's amateurish. Then I started to think, actually, it's quite clever because here is a character who is just driven by his mission. Yeah. And as the very instant his mission is a success, there is no more book. Why yeah. would there be any book? And it actually, uh, there's a nice correlation there. I actually read an electronic version of it and thought there was a problem with the version. <laughs> because I read an evil version. That's actually an interesting. I was like, yeah. What? Yeah. It wasn't until I actually got to the see Luke's, Luke's novel version where I was like, wow, that is actually the end. The next, um, the next book picks up immediately after it does yeah, yeah. that's cool immediately like, like the next sentence mm. Stargate SG1 kind of does that at the end of each episode they kind of resolve it and then it's the yeah there's no that's actually, I've never I hadn't actually uh, hadn't actually interpreted it that way but that's actually quite an interesting way of looking at yeah, it it may I be just, a charitable way of looking at it <laughs> I just looked at it as obviously you know he was writing for the pulps which meant he only mm. had a certain number of words yeah. per issue mm. to sort of fit things in so I just thought, you know, while well, he's, you know, he's got across the ending, he's run out of words. So he's just got it's, this. It's kind of like an early Twitter, not even enough for a full stop. Exactly right. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe actually, it was just the editor. He's just like, well, you've reached your limit. Like, That's there it. was actually a bit at the end where he goes back to the nurse and, and apologizes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't that. mean to treat me. Like, Look, I do have a personality. <laughs> it's like, no, we don't need this. She's just a woman. <laughs> All right. So uh, ratings, Crystal. Can, am I allowed to do fractions? Don't um, listen to Richard. He's, done, he's done fractions himself. And halves are half fractions. Point, <laughs> point yeah, five Lukes. Point five. Yeah. All right. Luke. Um, I give it a 2.5. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, I'll give it uh, two. I think uh, there are some interesting elements to the book. Uh, the world building is interesting. Mm. And the action is, you know, fairly action-y. Uh, space axe. <laughs> the action yeah, the space, is Yeah, the, the space <laughs> axe certainly gets a, gives it half a vote for me. But um, look, you know, the, the complete lack of characterization and, you know, sexist and ultraviolet fascist moments uh, <laughs> do offset that. But uh, some of the elements of the, of when the world... When you put it building, like that... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like I mean it is uh, it's written for its time, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know sexism obviously 
existed then as it does now, but uh, obviously a bit more prevalent. Uh, so the audience level was Even then, too. it's still inexcusable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think uh, writing for the Times is um, an appropriate excuse. I yeah, mean, no. by, by that token, when we were reviewing The Dispossessed on a previous podcast, yeah. which is very much reflective of the sort of late 60s, early mm. 70s, we were a bit critical of that as well. I'm so not so sure if writing for pass. The Times is it, did he know any better mm. at the time? He does have a PhD. Was, <laughs> I was listening to your last podcast. Not literature, you, though. <laughs> no. I think you were talking about uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Mm-hmm. And, and somebody was making the point that there are better books from that era. From now, period, I've, yeah. I haven't read that, so I'm not commenting on that case in particular. But there are books written in that era, mm. in this era, that aren't sexist. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Aaron. It's yeah. just, it's just exactly no reason right. for it. Anyway, exactly sorry, right. uh, Richard, we actually cut you off before your actual rating. That's okay. Mm, no, did, I did. gave the rating. I gave it two for a Oh, my bad. my bad. I'm still, I'm still in the shop for the 2.5. <laughs> <laughs> two, uh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, special guest, Aaron Marker. Oh, I think that two and a half is a fair score. Uh, it has some really intriguing concepts in it. It has some... Enjoyable action and uh, action, the action. Yeah, it's action, it's, action. it's a bit of a a well, not a trendsetter. What's the word? Trailblazer. Mm. Yeah. And uh, for that, I, I think it to, to to rate it too much lower than that would be a little too harsh. But um, so I'm now for, the harshest for, critic in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come to the lensman for, for all the the reasons that that you just outlined, uh, Richo. Uh, it, it can't be any higher. <laughs> uh, I personally am going to go with uh, 1.5. And uh, only for the same reasons as all of you said, it's just it's got some, it does have some really cool moments, um, and the lens itself is just a magnificent invention, mm. and uh, the action is actiony, uh, but some <laughs> of it I just, oh my god, I'll, I'll never read it again. Space. I wish I. Thanks everybody. Let's move on to off the racks. Okay, Arthur Rax is where we discuss uh, comics. They don't need to be recent ones. They can be old classics, particular issues, runs, anything we deem fit, really, and anything we want to talk about. Uh, for this section of Arthur Rax, we've actually got two separate comics to go with, and our special guest, Aaron, is actually going to cover Doc Savage from DC Comics. Go for it, Aaron. David uh, asked me to take a look at one of DC Comics' more recent attempts to revive a, a pulp classic. He sent me a handful of Doc Savage issues, um, numbers 5 through 12 to be precise, and they were published this year and uh, last year as well. And the first issue I tackled was by writer uh, B. Clay Moore and artist Harry, I was going to say Harry Potter, but <laughs> <laughs> Howard Porter, who I've hmm. never really been a huge fan of. He's all right. Well, since, since, the, since it's a DC comic, it wouldn't be Harry Potter doing the art, it would be uh, Timothy Hunter. <laughs> Controversy. <laughs> Um, I hadn't seen his work though since he did JLA with um, Grant Morrison so I was interested to see if he was still the same artist and I actually felt that this sort of comic suits his style a little bit better than superhero work I agree yeah. so issue 5 opens with uh, Doc and his, his crew on the run in Greece after being implicated in the assassination of a US politician and uh, one of Doc's local contacts offers him the use of a futuristic boat uh, but as soon as he arrives He's knocked out and offered up as the prize in a high-stakes poker game. <laughs> and that's gold. That's right there. That is exactly the kind of storyline that I wanted to see when I picked up Doc Savage. 
Uh, the dialogue is generally pretty hammy, which is fair enough, and occasionally it, it's, it reaches the sort of outright atrocious level. Uh, the, probably the, the pick of the bunch was when Doc yells out, hit them hard and fast and let's hit the ground running, boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, hitting, look, hitting them hard and fast is an absolute staple yes. of comic book writing. <laughs> I don't think there's a single character that hasn't <laughs> used those lines at least once. Uh, Cyclops uses it many times. But just cool. got pow, pow and zing, zing. <laughs> <laughs> just the lack of vocabulary, though. Hit them hard, hit the ground. In the same sentence. <laughs> the storytelling, art-wise, isn't fantastic with a bit of disconnect from panel to panel but the, mm. the art itself is quite nice and I like oh. the colouring the the issue is full of fisticuffs and gunplay and overall the issue was exactly what I was looking for and so I was thinking wow I can get out of this unfortunately well that was the last issue from Howard Porter and the last issue from that writer I think I'm, I'm mm. not absolutely from st- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, then went on to uh, Ivan Brandon and Brian Azzarello <laughs> Sorry, Crystal just showed me an obscene image. I I can't discuss it. <laughs> it's from the comic. <laughs> and uh, look, the the next issue, although it has mutant twins with an arsenal of nukes, it mm. just seems to take itself a little bit too seriously. And it wasn't helped by Nick Klein's art, which was there's nothing wrong with it. It's quite quite nice art style, but in my view, it just wasn't adventurous enough for the Doc Savage story. Mm. But then in the following issue, number seven he sort of ramps it up it's almost as if somebody gave him that message mm. and it becomes sort of more dynamic and he does his own colouring and there's some really good lighting and colouring there as well and the storyline continues all the way through issue 12 with a Phil Winslade fill-in issue along the way which at that point had been the third artist in six issues and I can't stand that sort of artist merry-go-round but yeah it's not exactly the ultimate Spider-Man with uh but that's 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 part of the course with every single because I've read the series since st- first wave first yeah. started, and they've stopped. You know, an artist might come in and do two issues, hmm. and then another artist will come in and you know finish off the story. It's... I think that's disrespectful. So th- this overall story was pretty decent, um, not quite as ridiculous as I would like. Uh, it, it basically involves Doc's quest to find an old comrade in arms who was long thought to be dead, but had mysteriously reappeared in a Middle Eastern nation. Well, that's how these stories work. Exactly. And, um, look, it got to the end. I was feeling a little underwhelmed, but then it finishes with an absolutely ridiculous stunt. I also think, I know David, Richo David, that you often uh, talk about your distaste for decompression in comics. Yeah. Doc Savage, to me, is a comic, as a comic, Mm. uh, should be... Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Mm. Here's a story two, in one or two issues. Two-fisted action all yeah. the way. Mm. And mm. they were stretching storylines mm. out for sort of five or six issues. Yeah. And it's not that it was terrible. It was, it was all right. But, but that's also Brian Azzarello as a writer, too. He, yeah. He's actually a very decompressed writer. Mm. Um, and I actually... Because he's the one who's sort of been in charge of the whole first wave in project. project. I think he's actually quite wrong because he doesn't have the sensibilities that make the pulp work. Yeah. They've chosen him because he's a sort of a slightly more modern kind of book writer he doesn't like writing superheroes they didn't really choose they didn't choose him he's the one that brought the idea up my first wave was either way idea. he was wrong <laughs> to be um it was he was wrong for the project but he's yeah. the one that brought it to their attention the so shouldn't it? he be involved in some way give, well, him, give him a give him a co-creator credit or something but they've got the the wrong writers the mm. wrong artists and yet it's turned out all right my biggest problem is that it's when I'm reading it, it feels like they're capturing the most superficial elements mm-hmm. of the Doc Savage pulp stories, yeah. but without giving me that 
sense of two-fisted awe and wonder and excitement mm, that I have get the from flair books. That you're <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I read the Dubsabi's books, mm. I find that I'm, I'm excited by them. You know, the action is. He's a cool character. The action is action. Um, And I don't find that in the comics. I find it's like they're trying to capture that, Mm. but they just, you know, and they do have certain, you know, fun and enjoyable elements, but they just can't quite capture that sense of adventure Mm. that the the pulp stories have. They don't keep them coming at a rate of knots. Exactly. Mm. I'd be interested to know if any of you have seen the movie. Yes. Yeah. Starring, starring Ron Eli starring Tarzan, Tarzan who's probably better as Tarzan and yeah. Doc Savage is one of the worst I only just discovered this, <laughs> I only just discovered this morning that the movie existed so mm. it's, it's, it's terrible it is absolutely abysmal I think Indiana Jones is actually a good example of a cult character mm, yeah. that is beautifully realised mm. on the screen you know mm. there's a little bit to him but it's, it's full on adventure you're following him all the time he's fighting Nazis he's you know trying to get the the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant that's the kind of approach yeah and that's the kind of approach that um, Doc Savage I think needs on film Mm. and I don't think the movie captures that Mm. in any way maybe you should give it another go They've been trying to. With Aaron as Doc Savage. They've been trying to get. Well, they've been trying to get a Doc Savage film after about twenty years. Now, yeah, that the, the that may be a, a poor casting decision. <laughs> <laughs> I have to hit the gym. <laughs> and, and, no, you know, there's CGI and the, these days, don't and, and the tanning salon as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they don't have to hit the tanning salon. You just get that fake tan because it's meant to be the man, yeah, of, man bronze. of bronze. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, just go to the hardware store and get a tin of gold spray paint. It was one of the things I really like about old pulp magazines and pulp comics and something that they have brought to an extent to the new series is just ridiculous covers and <laughs> awesome. I like uh, the covers especially for some of uh, the, the later issues the ones that I wasn't actually reading so issue 15 has Doc soaring through the sky using a jetpack seemingly unaware that a pterodactyl is a, is a bad thing <laughs> attacking another cover had him being menaced by a giant mummy <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, awesome. though, that also plays to the weakness of the actual stories. Mm, is yeah. that they have these great, exciting-looking covers, but the stories inside don't quite yeah. match up. I should, I should probably also mention that there's a backup feature in uh, some of the earlier Doc Savage issues, and that's Justice Inc. Yeah, featuring uh, another pulp character in the Avenger. Uh, it's by Jason Starr and mm. Scott Hampton, and tonally, these are very, very different from the the main feature. Uh, the Doc Savage material is, you know, much more boisterous, whereas this is a gritty crime storyline mm. with a subdued colour palette, and each one's about, I don't know, five or ten pages long. About that, and uh, they're really well worth a read. They're actually, uh, they're know, actually, they're actually better reading than the Doc Savage yeah, feature, I think. Yeah, yeah. cool. I agree. Um, and, yeah. Which is, and that's uh, the Avenger is a different character. He's meant to be a bit grittier anyway, and so you take that sort mm. of for granted, but. It's better written and better illustrated. He's more yeah. of the, the spider sort of deal. Yeah, I mean, he's... A little bit, yeah. The Avenger himself is yeah. sort of a mystery figure, mm. and uh, you learn about him through other characters. Well, it, it's interesting to me because in, you know, five or ten pages, they actually managed to capture beautifully the character as he appears in the mm. pulp stories, yep. Yep. which is something that the writers of the main book kind of failed to do mm. in the, you know, 20 pages that they're... It is five or ten pages almost the ideal length for a pulp comic story. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And they do manage to keep the mystery and the sort of mystique of the character oh, alive yeah. by, by keeping the story short. Um, it's just a shame that those those are the backup stories, but they're far superior. Mm. All right, so Aaron, uh, rating? Uh, I, it, it's not bad. I'd probably be looking at something like two and a half. 
Is that for the the series as a whole, or just individual well, stories? For the the issues that I read, which was uh, five through twelve. Excellent. Anybody else? Um, I give it one point five. I don't think they've actually caught the spirit of Doc Savage. Yeah, they've given it a good old college try, but. Uh, um, I yeah, I think that the spirit, which is also part of the first wave stuff, mm. is actually far better. So I give this one point five looks. Cool. I'll go one point five as well, and once again, mainly on. Justice League, which I agree mm. is actually a more enjoyable read. That mm. uh, in the hands of someone else, I'd, I'd, I mean, I've read Doc Savage comics that have worked, so mm. it's, there's no reason why I can't. No, I think it's, exactly. it's, it's not so much it's a bad comic. Mm. It's as you, you've pointed out, it's just not Doc Savage. Yeah, yeah. Mm. that's exactly right. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much, Aaron. Okay, coming up next, we have another Off the Racks with Luke and Kirby Genesis from Dynamite Entertainment. Okay, um, Kirby Dennis has uh, just recently started from Dynamite. It's written by Kurt Busick and, and co-plotted by Alex Ross, co-illustrated by Alex Ross, who's done the art design, but the bulk of the interior illustration is done by um, uh, Jackson Herbert. Um, and it's dealing with a whole bunch of characters and designs that um, Kirby created um, in the 70s and 80s, Dave. Yeah, they've just gone for everything that wasn't uh, under copyright to anybody else. Mm. Yeah, and the two the two big ones being um, Captain Victory and the Silver Star, um, them being the non the big non Marvel DC characters that Kirby created. Yeah, um, published by Pacific back in the early eighties. Back in the early eighties, um, and the story starts off. There's issue zero where the story starts off where you meet um, the main characters, Kirby. Um, so, the, is the character actually meant to represent Kirby himself, or oh, just his name as a here and here and there? It's meant. To, it sort of looks yeah. a bit like him if you have a look at the. And, um, and there, there are yeah. elements like you know where he where he mm. lives and certain elements that are taken from Kirby, mm. but he is a standalone so, character. Not, not the most subtle nod. When you call a book Kirby, Kirby Genesis, Genesis, I think it's pretty young. Um, where they're coming from. It is, is an awesome idea for the story, though. So. It is an awesome idea, and you know, it starts off. We meet, we meet young Kirby. He's um, uh, with his best friend slash potential future love interest and her father, watching the um the pioneer. Oh, right, right. His future potential love interest. Because and, the, as in, the, and her father is a potential love interest. No, <laughs> as, <laughs> yes, sorry, yes, I can see the point you're saying. Um, yes, the, the, poten- the potential, the potential love interest, love interest's father. Excellent. He Thank assessed you. her skeleton. Um, <laughs> and they're watching the Pioneer Ten as it's um, being shuttled off into space in the seventies. Um, Launched in nineteen seventy-three. Mm-hmm. Launched in nineteen seventy-three. Thank you very much. Um, uh, and the point being that it actually has a Kirby um, design, you know, the epitome of. Mankind, you know, now super fight glory. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is a cool, cool idea. It's a cool and actually true and true. So and it's an it's a, true. I'm glad I nice send Mark Pacella pictures up. Dan and you get you get the sense of who Kirby is as uh, you know the the everyman who we all um, might wish we weren't, but kind of are with his um with his friend, and they're presented as really nice, very relatable characters. You then get some stunning. Artwork from Alex Ross as the Pioneer Ten actually goes off into space, and you um, see the rest of the universe. Issue one, which came out about a couple, came out a couple of months ago, hits with uh, Kirby and Bobby, who's his next door neighbor slash potential love interest. And Bobby is actually spelled B O double B I with so a little heart over the top. <laughs> Not quite. Um, and we are reacquainted with those characters in college. We go through their sort of. It's potential love interest. Now they're in college. Are they actually love interest or what? They are still very like good. A move, dude. They are still very good friends. <laughs> Do something. Okay. Okay. Take it to a restaurant. 
geek. Generative movie. <laughs> um, that's what I that's all I could say. Um, when suddenly over the the night sky, Aaron appears and proposes to her. <laughs> that was unexpected. <laughs> Two godlike beings who represent the images that Kirby actually sent on the Pioneer Ten return to Earth. So basically, an alien race has encountered Pioneer Ten, seen mm-hmm. the pictures. Yep, they have come back. They're modeled themselves modeled after themselves these beings. After these beings. Mm-hmm. And as a result, suddenly, when they come back to Earth, suddenly their arrival heralds all the um, the fantastic discoveries. So, an underworld kingdom, beings from a parallel dimension, and throughout all this, Kirby sort of feeling this is all a bit familiar. Um, so he and Bobby, as the, all this excitement is racing around, go and visit a museum where he thinks that the answers might be held. And issue two picks up with Kirby and um, Bobby's father trying to trace. The godlike beings, and in doing so, they encounter another ra- another race of alien be- beings who kidnap Kirby. Um, and Sergeant Cortez, the father, meets um, the Silver Agent. That's the sorry, the Sil- no, sorry, Silver Stuff, <laughs> who's um, uh, a, su- a super soldier in the in the government's um, secret experiment. Music has done a beautiful job of running the world, but the real strength is Jackson Herbert's artwork, um, who conveys a, a wonderful sense of the universe and of Kirby's designs and characters, yet at no point it does he just come across as a Kirby knockoff. Yeah, he really also grounds it, grounds it in reality, the artwork as well. I mean, he, he balances out the fantastic by presenting you know, the world as a very real sort of relatable place as well, which sort of matches nicely um, the characterization of Kirby. Hmm. Um, so... You don't lose you don't lose the sense of real in the sense of the fantastic. I thought it was a really interesting choice in that even the, the sections that are fully painted by Alex Ross are not really Kirby like. I mean mm. there's some of the same sense of empowerment mm. of it, but the panel layout is nothing that Kirby would ever have done. Mm. No. And uh, it was interesting to notice that in the back of the zero issue mm. and I haven't read the, the issues in detail, but they show the the artistic process how uh, Alex Ross does what they describe as breakdowns. Mm. Mm-hmm. Th- they'd be finished pencils for another artist. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jackson Herbert is kind of an embellisher, but mm. uh, the the core artwork and the figure work and the layouts and everything like that is is all Alex Ross. Mm. Not that I'm trying to diminish what Herbert has, has done. You're not here, saying he's a tracer. I'm no. not saying he's a tracer. <laughs> I'm saying he, he's brought a lot to the table. But it's it's just interesting to get that insight into mm. what's going on behind the scenes. The quality is high. Quality side, the writing I think is very strong. Um, from the creator of Astro City. From the creator, and that's the nice thing about this. This is um, almost not quite a companion piece, but it's a nice little, you know, thing to fill the void in whilst we wait for Astro City to make its long vaunted return. And it's just a cool, cool idea. Just I mean, a cool, just cool idea. Whoever thought of that, um, I'll just... tell you what isn't cool. And uh, I've been out of the comics loop for a while, but when did we decide that it would be a good idea? to do a adaptation of the six million dollar man <laughs> uh, that's that's um okay to explain there is an ad in uh, the dynamite <laughs> issues uh for the bionic man which is a new comic book coming out uh by phil hester but it's based on a movie script by kevin smith oh so it's not coming out the, no the comic is coming out I oh, know if the Kevin Smith is the writer, it's not coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, he's, not doing, he's not doing movies now, so he actually has more time. Yeah. He has more time to ruin uh, comics we love, like Batman as a character. That's right, Kevin Smith. Your comics suck. Particularly oh. your Batman run, oh, <laughs> dude. 
What did you do uh, to the black cat? Seriously. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that was in great taste. Oh, it's terrible. I, I have to admit that uh, Kirby Genesis really is just a comic perfectly geared to me. Mm. Um, as a Kirby junkie, I love the idea that the entire universe is populated by Kirby characters. <laughs> yeah. And as you mentioned previously, that was your first comic, yeah? It was a Kirby it, comic? Absolutely. My, my earliest comics were Kirby comics. The, the comic that really ensured that I would remain a comic reader for the rest of my life was New God. So th- this is really aimed... It's your fault, Kirby. This, this is... Yeah, that's right. The, the, the money I've spent over the years. The insane amount of money. But um, look, yeah, I, I love Kirby and, and seeing his characters... Uh, brought to life in this series by Kurt Busiek, who I consider one of the best, you know, superhero writers in the industry. Um, you know, and giving it the right level of respect and all, but at the same time trying to ground it in a good, um, you know, interesting storyline with uh, well thought out characters. Just it just makes this exactly the the book that I want to read, and uh, it's 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 giving me that sense. This of one goes out to our friend in Australia, David Richardson. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gives, it gives me that sense of awe and wonder that I just don't see from a lot of comics anymore. It'd yeah. be interesting to know how you thought where where it sits with a, a book like Godland. I mean, mm. two things directly inspired by Kirby, yet seemingly quite different. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, Godland. It's a lot of fun to read, but. Um, Really, what it's trying to do more is just capture Kirby's style. Emulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's trying to capture the Kirby style of storytelling and art and that kind of, you know, action-adventure sort of Kirby style. Um, and in that respect, it works, and it works on that level. Mm. Um, what Kirby Genesis does more than anything else, I think, is create the awe and wonder and that sense of amazement that you get from, from the Kirby world, from the mm. Kirby universe, where it's just one big idea after another and that they but they all somehow fit together mm. um, and it's doing it by giving us that every man kind of character someone we can relate to so they, they work on different levels um, I think is there a superhero in that name? every man every man mm. actually I think already is a superhero <laughs> called every man but I would be shocked my god yeah. there's no new ideas under the sun no but um, I think Kirby Genesis does a better job of capturing the sense of awe that you get from reading a, a great Kirby comic um, whereas Godland is just a lot of fun. Okay, final thoughts. This is the second comic that I've been waiting for all year, and it hasn't disappointed me yet. What was the Four looks. I'm hanging out for Batwoman. Right. Yeah, great creative team. Yeah. Mm. It does look very cool. Mm. So, yes, uh, your rating is four looks. Four looks. Four out of five. Four out of five. Very I nice. think this is cool. Yeah, I've got to agree with Luke. At the moment, it's four. Um, it has the potential to go higher, but it's really a case of seeing where the story goes. But right now, yeah. I'm just... Loving every issue. Aaron? Look, I haven't read it, but that's not going to stop me from giving it a rating. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how I roll. It, it looks really good. It looks really good. Uh, yeah, I have read it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll also give it four. I think it's, uh, I'm actually... I'm fairly new to the wonder and grandeur of the Kirby universe. I actually haven't read a lot of Kirby stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, this is this has got me hooked, and uh, I definitely will be checking it out from now. I'll just read all of Richo's, because <laughs> he's got them all... So, just uh, about <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely 4 out of 5 it's excellent excellent stuff I really didn't get into Kirby until a little bit later because my first uh, my introduction to Kirby was that Superpower series yeah and mm-hmm. that wasn't his best work I mean mm. and you know I thought it was alright but didn't really see what all the fuss was about until yeah. until years later when um, I, I saw New Gods and yeah. uh, some of the older stuff the Thor yeah. work yeah. that he did which is just staggering yeah. Um, I'm a similar, similar deal. I was, my first introduction was uh, Commandy, 
and uh, I didn't think much of it at all. So I, I, don't, I just don't see the point. Yeah, obviously, I was a bit too young. I didn't I did, obviously didn't see the context. I mean, I've gone back and read it now, of course, and it's like, wow. Well, the covers like, alone of Commandy. Yeah, just... it's it's brilliant stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I've moved on to the new guys, and new guys to me is Ari's his ultimate. But uh, this well, is nobody does a double page splash. Like <laughs> no. Jack well, okay, so thank you very much, Luke, and everybody else. Excellent. Uh, so Joby. Uh, Gerbil Genesis. Kirby Genesis, Dynamite Entertainment, pick it up. Good stuff. Okay, coming up next we have War Room. Okay, so for this installment of War Room, we're going to be discussing the history and influences of the pulps. The Pulse, of course, referring to the pop magazines that had their heyday in the 20s, 30s, that uh, go back even further than that, which you're about to find out. So to start us off, can we have Luke? Pulp refers to the, um, the sort of the cheapness of the, um, the paper that the magazines were printed on. It was um, printed at uh, a very low cost. Um, the, if, what is referred to as the first official, official Pulp magazine is, I think, the 1896... Um, October issue of um, Argosy, by mm. uh, published by Frank R. Muncy. Huge magazine in its day. Uh, um, a huge magazine in its day, and I might just mean in size. I mean, mm. it's a <laughs> um, really hard to read on the because that's <laughs> because for publishing costs, he had to actually go to the sort of the cheaper, um, you know, the lower grade paper, the mm-hmm. um, the sort of slightly more saltier stories, I guess. But the uh, but there is you know the precursor for the pop char- for the pulps and what eventually became you know pulp characters. There was the, the build-up to it, you know, the Strand with Sherlock Holmes. Um, I mean, you can even go back, or go way back to, you know, the Knights of the Round Table, and you know, all the fact that all those stories were actually crafted specifically for certain patrons. Were they all serials when they started out, or were the character progressing from issue to issue? Or um, some were, some were short stories. Mm. The first um, really major character, I guess you could say, is Tarzan. John Carter of Mars, but also Edgar Rice Burroughs, was published um, beforehand, but Tarzan became phenomenal. Well, that's funny, Tarzan, because Ron Eli plays... Ron Eli plays Doc Savage, and he played Tarzan on TV. Um, (laughs) But he wasn't... um, He didn't have a Tarzan magazine as such. There was no Tarzan magazine dedicated to him. Mm. The genre sort of came later. The genre, the genre stuff uh, sort of really came. Mixed up and then you get, then you got the western mm. pulps, the horror. Once, yeah. once people started to actually work trying to find what the genres were, mm. that's when you got the, um, yeah. the, and when the sales became good enough. And the sales when, when they when the sales became phenomenal, um, and it carried on into the, twi- um, past the first world war into the twenties mm. when things like Amazing Stories by well, it helps uh, they were much cheaper than the glossies too. Yeah, they were like a, like yeah, a dime. It's, yeah, a dime. Yeah, it's, mm. they're, they're called the dime. So yeah. been, even even at the at a dime, they sold just a unbelievable amount. Mm. It's just, I mean, well, if you think, if, that, but that's all, that also 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 a bit of a status there as well. You know, the glo- the slicks, the glossies, are slightly more elite. Um, posh, mm. posh. Um, Probably paid their writers more. They did. They, they did, paid. Yeah. They, 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 they paid. had pictures. The pulps didn't have any pictures. No, the pulps had pictures. The original, the early ones didn't. The early ones didn't, but the the pulps later on certainly later on they to, certainly did. Yeah, get to their heyday, they yeah, certainly the, had pictures, the cover art and whatnot. Yeah, and illustrations within the stories as yeah. well. And yeah. the covers were one of the major draws. Um, the covers were awesome, as, yeah. as Aaron mentioned. Mm. In his 
He's Doc Savage reviews. Like and and very sensationalistic, mm-hmm. a lot of the covers actually as found well. In research this, the top. I actually found a, a website that just has the covers. Yep. Yeah. There are plenty <laughs> of those sites. There's almost a sort of a trade, I guess, an industry in pop covers in and of themselves. Mm. Um, but we sort of get to the 20s and um, into the 30s with um, the creation of magazines like Black Mask. And Black Mask becomes a very important pop magazine because... Um, first of all, it was seen as sort of the higher end of the pop, mar- pop mm. market. They paid their writers a lot, a bit better. Their stories were better. Black Mask was a crime magazine where guys like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler had their first stories published. Uh-huh. Um, and from Black Mask, just any sort of important crime writer of the 40s mm. and the 50s, um, or late 30s, 40s and 50s, certainly got their start um, in Black Mask. You also had Amazing Stories by Hugo Gernsback, in which the term scientific fiction was coined. Mm-hmm. There had been sort of bandy, you know, a term for science fiction had been bandied about in the decades previously, but he was the first one to actually sort of say, no, this is what it is, mm-hmm. coined science fiction, which then later became science fiction. So and a the, huge influence on And a huge people. influence, so... The and then sci-fi. And, and then, then sci-fi. S-Y-F-Y. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh sorry. <clears throat> Um, and I'm sort of rushing here to get to what I consider to be the really cool aspect of the Pulps, um, which is the introduction of a character who became highly influential. He sort of had precedent years um, before in you know characters like Nick Carter, who was a dime novel detective, oh, sorry, a dime novel character, detective and dime novel character, Sherlock Holmes and Dracula, and that is the Shadow. And the Shadow. <laughs> No, we're talking about the real show. Luke looked like he was going to slap you then. He was going to come across the table. I shouldn't be saying that because I like the shit. I like the Alec Baldwin film, but enough of that. Um, what's interesting about the creation of The Shadow is that The Shadow actually starts as the host of Detective Story um, really? Weekly, the radio show. What what it was was that Street and Smith, the publishers of Detective, Sto- of Detective Story, um, had a radio show that they used to inspire... They used to publish the, um, sorry, to sell um, the magazine, and he was just, you know, sort of like a tales from the, a, a crypt keeper type radio announcer. No, I never knew that. Yep. No, that's one. how he did. And he, one of the, um, I think the guy's name was James Lermorto or James mm-hmm. Lacotta or something. I can't remember the name just off the top of my head. Um, he was the publicity still have him, you know, dressed in a, a, a hood and a cape, sort of looking a bit creepy and that's a bit cool. creepy. Like, yeah. what happened was that he got replaced by another guy called Frank Redick. Um, who had bought a slightly more wispier, mysterious tone and the laugh. Mm. Well, just like the Darrens in Bewitched, you wouldn't have noticed. Yeah, you'd have, <laughs> you'd have the nose. Um, Did he have the nose? Was that... No. Right. Um, and well, then it's not the shadow, then, is it? No, 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 because what happened then was <laughs> that... Just that the evolution the, of the shadow's Because nose. <laughs> then what happened was that the shadow, um, in and of himself, became synonymous with the show. Mm-hmm. Um, because of... The, mis- the mystery that Frank Reddick gave the character and instead of going into odds newsstands or into bookstores or a- news agents or what have you um, and asking for Detective Story Weekly they're asking for the shadow they were asking for that shadow magazine hmm. are you going to need a magazine with that shadow guy that's exactly it that was terrible that's exactly what they were doing <laughs> I don't know why I said it that led them that started the ball rolling um, into creating um the magazine and of itself. They, they ran a strange, this really strange competition in where they let, gave clues to the audience and the audience had to decipher the description of the shadow based on the clues that they had given. 
And I mention this briefly because they then gave it to the guy who actually was in charge of writing the Shadow magazine, Walter B. Gibson. Um, they say, yeah, now use this. And then he promptly threw it out. <laughs> um, a wise uh, decision. Um, and Walter B. Gibson was, used to, he was a writer for, a, a pop writer, but he was also interested in magic and he was worked with a, a magician like called Thurston. And they were going through, you know, he was writing for Thurston, trying to get, you know, find a, a various venues for him. Took his stuff to Street and Smith. Street and Smith had a look at him and thought, now we've got this new guy that you want. We've got this new magazine. Would you mind writing for it? Um, and he did. They got they liked it. They published it. They were originally going to do it as maybe a quarterly, you know, few issues a year. It sold out. Unprecedented. 1931. Mm. The Living Shadow. The, it sort of that's the, the the more famous sort of image of the shadow is what comes from the Black Hush, which is thirty three, but then when it was reprinted, it became synonymous, which is you know the shadow face in black, face sort of almost in silhouette except for the eyes, the nose, and it introduced the shadow and his rather unique approach to fighting crime, which was you know that basically all evildoers should be wiped off the face of the earth. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> his dual pistols? With his dual idea. pistols. Did the pistols have names? No, that's no. the Avenger. From the Shadow, the Shadow's success then pretty much um, ballooned into the character magazine market. And the second major character, and he appeared quite quickly afterwards, the second major character is Doc Savage. And the Shadow and Doc Savage, if anyone's talking about you know pulp fiction and pulp fiction characters, they're the big two. The big two. Um, you either are an offshoot of the Shadow, there were hundreds of them, or you're an offshoot of Doc Savage, and there were hundreds of them. It's interesting that you say that about uh, uh, Doc Savage and the Shadow. It's mm. it's kind of, if you look at Superman and Batman, they're kind mm. of the, the same. And what, what I want to talk about a little bit later on, about the because we're talking about the influence as All well, right. but the, the direct influence that the Shadow has... On Batman, because it's whilst it it might look surface, there's actually a lot more. But we'll talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit later. Well, it's actually interesting because mm. uh, um, when I heard that Aaron was going to review Doc Savage comics, I wanted to know a bit more about the character, so I did a bit of research myself and tracked down the first Doc Savage story. Story. So this this came out in 1933, mm. and I found an interesting passage that I just wanted to read out to you guys and I just wanted to get a reaction to see what you think because bear in mind it's 1933 he did not explain where he had been so to set the scene he he's just come back to his office and he's just meeting his men again for the first time after a little absence he did not explain where he'd been did not mention his fortress of solitude his rendezvous built on a rocky island deep in the arctic regions he had been there the Fortress of Solitude had been his father's recommendation, and no one on earth knew the location of the retreat. Once there, nothing could interrupt Doc's studies and experiments. Well, I wow. can't see anything. No, no influence. Why are you that for? I just just watching Luke's face while you were reading it out. Was just, he was, this grin on his face was insane. So let's just put it into context. So, as you mentioned, that's Doc Savage 1933. Doc yep. Savage 1933, and, and I Superman had, makes his appearance in 1938. Yep. So five years later, and it's just the... And this is very yeah. early on in the story, and the, the mm. words Fortress of Solitude leaped out at me. I wonder if that was 
a phrase that was more common back then that it people said. It could have been, but it's in the Arctic um, region. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, the location I, I is also. It's located in the Arctic in the regions, Arctic. and it's his father's, it father's idea, idea, and he, that's where he learns stuff. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> the, and it should also be pointed out. Um, Doc is Doc and Doc Savage is a nickname that you know everyone bestows on him. Well, he's actually name, a doctor. He's a doctor, but everyone. His first name, name that I didn't even click. Clark. Yes. His name, full name is Clark Savage Junior. Yep. Yeah. No, I didn't even click. Um, well done. And the the yeah. Kent in Superman comes from Kent Allard. Kent Allard, who is actually from The Shadow, but then yeah. we'll talk about it better. Wow, well, it's all coming yeah. together for me now. There are two very clear influences on Superman. One is definitely Doc Savage. Mm. Uh, the other one is a book called Gladiator by Philip Wiley, mm. which um, was also a huge influence. But you can, you can sort of see Siegel and Schuster, um, because the character in Gladiator and the, char- and the character of Doc, Doc Savage have mm. similarities as well. So you can sort of see how they're kind of taking influences from both sources to put mm. them together. But certainly, yeah, The Fortress of Solitude, I think it's fairly safe to say, clearly comes from Doug Savage. Mm. But I, I know I should, I should be outraged, but I kind of like it. Mm. Yeah, I, mm. I just mm. like the the way all these comic book characters and, and um, serialised uh, magazine pulp characters just sort of cannibalise each other. Mm. Yeah. And mm. uh, you take, you know, the best elements of this one and the best elements of that one and come up with something really compelling. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah. almost like a shared universe. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, the, I'm a huge fan of I mean, One of my favourite comics is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which has mm. that, the idea that, I think it's, I think it's called the, what, the Newton... The, the Wald Newton tree. Yeah. The Wald yeah. Newton theory. Wald Newton which theory, where we can also exist in the bring same back, universe. Bring back to Doc's... Doc Savage because the Wild Newton um, stuff was created by Philip Jose Farmer and used it in two books that he wrote. He was a science fiction author famous for creating the Riverworld saga. But he wrote two two biographies. One was Tarzan Alive. What's and all or did it just brush over the controversies? (laughs) (laughs) What's and all um, in which um, He really likes Alex especially when it's cold. Doc Savage was the other one he did. What I liked about this Doc Savage story, at least in the very beginning, is uh, the characters, their strengths lay in their science and their mm. knowledge and their expertise. But how, as I read on, the characters were beyond perfect. There was no flaws. <laughs> and the author spent... Wasted, well, he's a man of bronze. He wasted no time in reminding you of this. Every other sentence was talking about his physique and his muscle. <laughs> and what are you trying to say? And then, were you excited? What, As a reader, were you like, wow, this guy's No, I'm thinking, come you know, by, by, after a while, I'm thinking, yes, okay, we know he's perfect. Mm. Move so you on. Can play one Nathan Fillion now. There's a homoerotic undercurrent to some of this stuff. I was thinking that, but maybe it's just a sign of the time. It's just, How dare you, sir? I think madam. it was a sign of the times. Is it written for young boys? Um, and it's just after the first war, before the second war, yeah. they're looking up to heroes and they want the perfect hero. There's, there's a line in it, and it's just, this is actually not about Doc, I think it's Rennie. He's um, got great muscles popping up along his arms, suddenly split open his coat, his coat sleeve wide open. He glanced at the ruined sleeve ruefully and brought his arm out of the sleeve. So he's so muscly that he just pops out his clothes at random. <laughs> Has he thought about maybe going yeah. up to an XL? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Get a bit of Taylor, dude. You're I mean, he, he constantly reminded of how fantastic these guys are. And uh, Came up so far, no, no flaws at mm. all. 
excellent pilots and, and any other pilot in this situation couldn't possibly do what he's doing. And <laughs> they're very much, uh, so, they are very much old old school adventure yeah, heroes. It's, with, oh, it's yeah, very yeah. over the top. It's very yeah. hammy. Oh, having said this, though, it's still written well as compared yeah. to the Lensman story. So you like so you like the story. Well, yeah, but it's written well as compared to the Landsman story. There's, there's as compared to yeah, because uh, it's just it's just told well. But there are some little there are some little idiosyncrasies in, for example, he will talk in sort of the casual language in one sentence, and then the next language in the next sentence slip into very formal language. So he will be talking about someone's lingo, mm-hmm. but in the next sentence he'll say. They did not know from whence the plane came. Hmm. Does he throw in a hither and a thither every now and again? No, he didn't. <laughs> Damn. So you beat me to it. I was going to ask the same question. I didn't get time to finish this before the podcast, but this is on one of the few occasions I might actually go back and finish it, even though yeah. I don't have to now. Cool. Oh, the only other idiosyncrasy or point that I was going to bring up was that I was surprised of the use of the word "dude" on some occasions. I knew it was older than I thought, but. It just mm. popped up at the Does that throw out a cowabunga every now and again? <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, dude at least dates back to the Wild West. Yeah, yeah it dates yeah, back to Back to the Future Part 3. Mr. Eastwood. So, yeah, so obviously there were some other characters as well. I mean, we've focused a lot on Doc Savage and uh, the Shadow because, let's face it, they're awesome. But there's some of these, a whole universe of, of just characters out there. And, of course, uh, personal favourite of Richo's. Well, I mean, yeah, there's there's characters like Captain Future. I think um, mm. important characters like the Lone Ranger and um, Zorro, Zorro, the Green Hornet. Um, yeah, and then and then some of the yeah the derivative characters uh, like the Spider. But I think uh, probably the most important one that we haven't touched on yet is uh, Conan. Oh, mm. you mean Conan the Barbarian? I do mean Conan the Barbarian, or perhaps Conan the King, or Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> yeah. What about Conan <laughs> O'Brien? Wasn't he around back then? <laughs> Well, Conan, Conan is probably, I think, uh, should actually be up there with um, <laughs> The Shadow and Doc Savage just on influence. The number of uh, oh, sword and sorcery mm. characters that were inspired by Conan is actually quite substantial. The thing about Conan, though, before you've got to remember, is that Conan had a big revival in the paperbacks in the 50s. So he, he, whilst he is a, a pop character, I'm not dismissing that at all, he sometimes gets seen as being away from that occasionally. True, but at the same time, I mean... But we like to be factual on New Culture Podcast. Do we? And, and as we're saying, he's yeah. a folk character. Yeah, and Robert Howard introduced um, you know, characters like Cull and um, Solomon Kane as well, but Conan's the one that's really uh, stood the test of time mm. and just had a massive influence on... Um, you know, on fantasy stories since. Mm. Uh, I like the you've mentioned Doc Savage and, uh, of course, uh, Captain Future. I just wish that more of the pop characters had professional qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Captain Future actually was a captain, now that I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Doc, Doc was a, 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 a physician and a surgeon. Mm. Yeah, he was actually... And an all-round perfect man. An all-round perfect and, man. Um, and I also think we shouldn't, despite our rather scathing uh, review of it, we actually can't underestimate the influence of something like... Uh, the Lensman series mm. as well. A scathing. No, I think it was a fair. Yeah, and it was mm. fair and accurate. We reported <laughs> and you can decide. Yeah. So, Luke, you want to touch on the shadow? Okay, now the importance of... I wonder that. The importance of the shadow um, in terms of one of the most... What has now become uh, the most famous character... One of the most famous characters in pop culture history, it, to the extent that he's actually now eclipsed the shadow considerably, is Batman. Um, which is that it's one of the interesting things that Sanctum Books, who are doing the reprints of the Shadow novels and the Doc Savage novels, is that they've also done a lot of investigating as, as to the direct links between 
um, the, the pop characters and other pop cultural characters. Is it as direct a link as saying Fortress of Solitude and Clark and yes, because and stuff? No, that's pretty direct. The shadow operated yeah. uh, out of so the bat cave. Yes. No, no. <laughs> um, okay. Look, some obvious things. You know, Night of Darkness, dark, Shadow, dark shadow Shark Repellent, Night of Darkness, Dark Night. You know. Hmm. Um, uh, more vigilante concerns as opposed to the optimistic concerns of Superman and um, Doc Savage have their own sort of little hideout where they go to the very first Batman story written by Bill Finger he cribbed it from uh, a shadow novel written by Theodore Tinsley called Partners in Peril oh no doubt he even has the gun and no 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 no. actually took it beat for beat no yeah the entire story it's just repeat (laughs) that's just crazy Um, so the very and Bill Finger himself has actually said years later, oh, you know, I it was you know inspired by some shadow novel, and they found out that that was the one because beat for beat, you know, the the type of villains, the trap, the trap that the shadow gets caught in is the same as the trap that Batman gets caught in. Inspired by um, is it a giant? <laughs> is it a giant champagne glass that he's going to slowly die? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head. That, that, that comes much later in um, the Batman mythos. <laughs> but yeah, um, so the very first Batman story. Was actually an old was actually a reworked shadow pl- an, an old published shadow plot. There you go. Um, and that was one of the many things. And they've actually done that quite a lot since. You know, they're talking about you know the influence of the Batarang, and you know the possible origins of the Joker. Shall I have a shadow ring? Gadgets. I think he used a Batarang. It was I can't remember the story off the top of my head, but he used a Batarang like device or, or a boomerang. Boomerang. In his own. What is um, the boomerang? Doesn't for... come back. A stick. <laughs> <laughs> His own quest for um, for justice, um, and yeah. So, whilst it might look like the service, you know, they're sort of interdirectly related, but you know, they're distant. They're actually quite similar. I think it's a lot of crime out there. So <laughs> having additional crime <laughs> fighters on the scene. There's room for everybody. As we know, the seeds of crime bear bit of fruit. <laughs> and whilst the shadow knows, and it's obviously everybody else has to know as well. So. Dave, you might think it's the seed of crime. We all think it's the weed of crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. Same difference. Okay, so they obviously they had a huge, huge influence on uh, quite a number of people, and mm. you know, if you want Certainly to use the word, use the word influence in any way you want. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so and they had the big heyday where they were selling ridiculous amounts, but mm. then eventually they did decline yep. in sales. And uh, but now they're seeing a bit of a resurgence. Uh, well, they, okay, especially online, mm. they resor- they went into a bit of a decline um, for a number of reasons. The most popular one being the introduction of paperbacks. Yeah. In the for, the late for, late thirties, sorry. And some of the companies producing the pulp actually went moved onto the slicks themselves. Yeah, moved onto the slicks and themselves. Making some more money. Um, and then there are other variety. Of, there are a variety of factors, you know, paper shortage during the war and things like that. Yeah. Um, but that is sort of seen as the you know the big reason as to why you know the introduction of paper mm. of um, paperbacks, which meant that good quality books were now available to yeah, to an audience who could no longer who could previously not afford good books. And so they, it wasn't a, a quick decline. They went through a steady decline. The last one, I think, being the fifties, mm-hmm. um, in which they had their own sort of paperback resurgence. The Shadow had one. Doc Savage had one. Conan certainly had one in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Conan's has been prominent ever since mm-hmm. because of the rising fantasy um, interest. And just recently remade. And just recently remade. Was were they were the pulp magazines at all caught up in the House Un American activities stuff? No, no, not really, because the the house the house on American activities uh, commission um, basically really didn't get rolling until the nineteen fifties when the pulps were already in, in decline, in decline. Yeah. and so obviously the you know the um, and you know the Senate investigations in relation to that sort of thing focused more on obviously on Hollywood, 
Yeah. Um, and and also, I mean, the senators would have had to read, so I mean, they're not going <laughs> to. Well, they, they could read, read enough. Savage. That was very patriotic, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. they could read enough to start uh, attacking the comic books. Mm. Well, they could um, look at the pictures. No, they read into enough to start attacking the comic books. Yeah, that's another thing. That's you know. another war room. Um, yeah, the yeah, rise the of kids. Kids were kids. The kids who read pulps. I mean, pulps were written by not just kids. Adults and kids, but you know, kids. They went to the superheroes because it was there. There's some genre to this. Um, there has been a bit of a recent resurgence, yeah. not necessarily a spectacular one, um, but there has been one in recent years in which a lot of the old characters, a lot of the old stories, are now being republished. Sanctum Press, as I mentioned, is doing the Shadow, Doc Savage, plus also the Whisperer and the Avenger, which are two of the other minor characters. Um, and Adventure House is doing. Pretty much a lot of the other um, big grade characters, like the Black Bat, who um, dressed as a bat and was a blind lawyer. Um, That's magnificent. <laughs> but there's no influence there whatsoever. Um, <laughs> and things like that. Yes, I'm um, but there's also been, as done in the um, the comic review, uh, sort of a more a more introduction, sorry, more reintroduction to the comics as well with Doc Savage, and Moonstone has been doing um, this thing called Return of the Originals, which has been using the old pulp characters but trying to write new stories for them in a new mm. setting. Oh, okay, cool. Almost in a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen way too. Yeah. The, 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 in a shared universe. Oh, I love that world Newton stuff. Mm. It's great stuff. Cool. So there you have it, folks. The uh, the world of pulp. Uh, if you've become interested in reading up on some of them, there's uh, plenty that you've gotten online as well as, uh, like as Luke said, reintroduction by... Sanctum Press. Sanctum Press. Check uh, out the originals. And dusty second-hand bookstores. So it's, um, their influence on our current nerd culture, pop culture, just cannot be denied. So yeah. check them out. There's some great stuff there. Thanks, everybody. Coming soon, where we discuss the films that are going to be released in between the periods of this podcast and the next podcast. The 25th of August uh, sees the release of Priests, starring Paul Bettany and Carl Urban. Yeah, it doesn't uh, look good. It looks pretty ordinary. Look for a review on the website. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that one at all. Yeah, it's I not know. based on the comic, is it? No, it's not based no. on the comic. It's actually uh, it's from the same people that brought us um, Legion, mm. which was just woefully bad didn't that, that also had uh, Paul Bettany also had Paul Bettany on it yeah. something gone on there uh, but uh, no bad that, but that, uh, it's remember a, when we first saw that, that priest comic yeah. and it was just a, a priest standing there with a shotgun with a shotgun <laughs> yeah. classic well they had Shobo with a shotgun they should do a sequel <laughs> with a priest with a shotgun but uh, it's a pretty it's pretty slim pickings because uh, the only other film that's even slightly related to you know pop culture is um, Final Destination Five on September one. So oh my, I'll be goodness. avoiding that bad boy. I haven't seen Final Destinations one to four. It's all right. How have they, they got? It turns out they weren't the Final Destination. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the, final, the, wasn't final the last one meant to be the, the ultimate Final Destination? Like yeah. the very last one. We're not doing well, Terminal any more Destination. Of these. It's just like uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street, the final and, and uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Chapter was not the final chapter. Yeah, Friday the 13th Part 4 was the final <laughs> chapter of that 10 parts. No, it was the final chapter, it's just that there was then a new the beginning. New beginning. <laughs> I'm just thinking that these Final Destination films will just run right through to when they remake the first one. Okay, so uh, next episode we have a pretty poor uh, selection of cinema releases, as you just heard. So we're actually going to go back and do another one of our classics, like we did with uh, Blade Run. So this one will be. 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah uh, you know it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand but it's not a genius 
a piece of you know cinematic genius the way that something like Final Destination is. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, we'll just lack hole. <laughs> we'll discuss that in there. Oh, you know, you know. See, so, see, how can two thousand one be genius? You know, there's only two two thousand and one films <laughs> not made. You know, twenty years apart. How can so, so by that logic, Friday the Thirteenth is one of the greatest movies of all time. Quite clearly, two thousand one. Obviously, hack work. I, I love the phrase of all time. You know, as if they were making movies back in the fourteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> so just before we finish off, I just want to do a quick bit on the Hugo Awards. This year, uh, anybody who's been on the website www.nerdculturepodcast.com will know that uh, Young Richo and Young Luke have been reviewing the Hugo nominees, the massive undertaking boys, very impressive, and giving their own opinions. Well, the Hugos were just announced, so uh, we have a winner, but uh, I'll let Richo and Luke take over and discuss them. Well, there were five books nominated this year. Um, Feed, The Dervish House, Blackout, uh, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, and Cryoburn. Our vote for best book actually went to the hundred thousand kingdoms yep. uh, we thought it was the most uh entertaining of the five books and certainly the one that held our attention the most mm. unfortunately it wasn't the book that won <laughs> no it wasn't no just quickly hundred thousand um nk jemison's her first book so most likely probably not going to win it's also a fantasy book and wasn't going to win even though it's the best book of this year's nominees we'd uh, managed to narrow it down to two potential winners just based on you know the usual the looking at past winners and seeing which which types of books win mm. um, so generally generally you guys thought they were a pretty bad batch yeah just for anybody who uh, wasn't on the website just throw out the uh, ratings you gave each novel um okay we gave feed a point five of a look uh and in some respects that was actually even being remarkably generous for the book i uh, should just point out that point five. That point five of a Luke comes from Richo. Yeah, that's true. It was um, a terrible book. It yeah. really was. Should um, not have been published, let alone nominated. It was glorified uh, airport literature. Really, it I was, wouldn't even go so that. To say, yeah. I wouldn't even go that far. Just it, it, a badly written, badly plotted. Just should not have been on a bookshelf. Now, Luke did the review of the Dervish House and gave it uh, one point five oh, stars. God, one of the most boring books I've ever read. It was, it was very... Um, it could have been a good book if Ian MacDonald had an editor or, or had, an, had sufficient editing skills himself to know what to cut um, and to know what story to tell. It was... Um, it, it's not all over the place, but it is rambling. Yeah, um, and that, that's a fairly uh, common uh, problem with this year's books. Hmm. They all seem to sort of ramble a little bit. Okay, we gave uh, Blackout two stars. Once again, it also rambled a bit. There were some interesting ideas there, but and some wonderful research, but uh, not a lot of characterization, unfortunately. So, nothing to really hook you in and keep you reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we gave Cryo Burn uh, two and a half stars, which was it's it's uh, part of a series. It's like the fourteenth book in Lois McMaster Bujold's Miles Falker Sagan saga. <laughs> The 14th book. 14th book. Prolific. And the previous ones, actually, yeah, Never read any of the previous ones, so I came up to this. And the previous ones were nominated, and they've and they've won. Several, several of her books have, um, in this series have won, yeah. Wow. Um, and, look, not a, not a bad book, per se, um, but I was coming into the series from this, from Cryburn. Um, I did think, and I thought that um, it opened well, but all the best stuff. I think must have been in some later later books. It had the feeling of this is this this earlier books of the earlier books. Yeah, it had this had the feeling of you know a bit tired. Yeah, um, yeah, we've we've missed the good stuff and coming yeah. really late into the story. Yeah, 
Um, well, that doesn't necessarily. I mean, Discworld still still uh, good quality, and that's how many books are there. Like, but Discworld, there? Discworld, um, he doesn't. Not every single book is about Rincewind. Well, that's true. Our uh, pick of the crop was actually the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, which we gave three Lukes uh, for the reasons which we've already mentioned earlier in this show. Um, but yeah, basically, it was entertaining. It was well written, and it actually had our attention a lot more than uh, the other books. Uh, on the list it was a book where stuff happened. Yeah, the action was action. Where the characters, the action were, was indeed. The actors action. were kind of interesting. So as I said, yes. uh, the winner has it has been announced. So it's just well, just we, now. Yeah. Well, we we narrowed it down basically uh, to two books: uh, the Dervish House and Blackout Stroke All Clear. Um, and the reason being that um, the Dervish House in McDonald's been nominated before for some highly respected books like Brazil, and um, this is also. Had had a bit of profile, so it was also a contender and blackout because Connie Willis has yeah. been nominated and won for just about every single book she's won, has written. Sorry, yeah. um, well, geez, th- this book was um, the what is it? The fourth book, fourth and fifth books mm. in uh, a series of books centered around this world of time travelers that Blackout has in it, and uh, I'm pretty sure each one of the books in the past. Has actually won the Hugo Award. Doomsday Book and to say nothing of the dog. Yeah, and also one of the novellas she wrote also mm. won uh, the Best Novella Award. So, yeah, pretty much she's got the attention of the Hugos quite substantially. And uh, sure enough, Blackout and All Clear were the winners. So, is it just a case that she just knows some people? Knows some people. This is the highest profile book of the bunch. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, being sold. It, I mean, here it was in Australia. It was sold in Borders. Amongst you know all the other you know the crime book the, the the new release crime books the new release romance mainstream fiction books so it's it was yeah it was kept, it was kept separate from the science fiction uh, section um, yeah. because it was yeah because it was seen as something that uh, transcended science fiction in that way that so many people seem to think that science fiction is some sort of trash genre and so yeah so it was it was one of those books that you could just tell had uh, had all the trappings of a book that was going to a win even though. It really it didn't deserve to. No. And I've got to say, none of the books on the list actually deserve... Even The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms isn't what we thought was Hugo-worthy. It, we just thought it was, deserved to win over some of yeah, the other books. Yeah, there was this, no book that really... A bad bunch. Yeah. yeah, there was no book that really leapt out and said, this is a modern masterpiece. Hmm. Well, I mean, I haven't read it, so I can't really say, but I mean, I've read the review and it doesn't sound very good. But, I mean, congratulations anyway. Yeah, I mean, congratulations, Connie Willis. Well done. <laughs> I don't know. It, this it, it's this is sort of saying that medi- you know, when in doubt, go with mediocrity <laughs> instead of well, having, having, having it just has that, something a bit more happening. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't that. mean we have to be mean about it. I mean, having I just think we don't agree with it. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's still. It's, I'm taking a stab fair, here and now. I will be mean. I am be, the harshest critic. <laughs> and to be fair. There were some very good aspects to Blackout, especially from a research and historical perspective. So it's it's clear she's really put a lot of time and effort into writing the book. I just wish she'd written better characters and a better story to go with all the research that she had. Fair enough. So check out all of the reviews at uh, Dust Jacket on the website, www.nerdculturepodcast.com. And for future Dust Jacket reviews, I mean, what's your next one coming up? I believe it's the... The Wind Up Girl Wind is up our girl. next review. We want to compare one of last year's winners mm. with this year's winners, just to sort of give us a good comparison. Yeah. And our coming up uh, podcast, Dust Jacket, will be Lord of Light. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. So there you have it, another episode of Nerd Culture Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us 
on iTunes and also check out the website www.newculturepodcast.com uh, I'd like to thank Richard I knew that it was wheat <laughs> Crystal <laughs> okay <laughs> Luke shout out those you said seeds <laughs> and special guest star Aaron Malcolm thank you very much for joining us thank you for having me Yay. It was. it's been a pleasure Thank you, everybody out there in the podcast land. Bye. Bye. Smithers, you are quite good at turning (laughs) me on.